0: The news! is mad, it's out of control, and there's so much of it. That's why we've launched Paper Cuts, the fast and funny podcast that makes sense of the great British press, now out five days a week. I'm Miranda Sawyer, and I'm joined by brilliant comedians, commentators, journalists and general smart people to look at the weirdness, the obsessions and the occasional triumphs of the papers. We're out mid-morning every weekday with the funniest headlines, the wildest stories and tip-top commentary on the absolute state of the Fourth Estate. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast app. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Hello, and welcome to The Bunker, diving deep into news and politics seven days a week. I'm Dorian Linsky. Political songs rarely top America's Billboard charts. In fact, when Childish Gambino's This Is America did so in 2018, it was the first number one protest song since Stevie Wonder in 1974. This summer, we've had two political songs, Try That In A Small Town by Jason Aldean and Rich Men North of Richmond by Oliver Anthony. But both are country music, not famous for explicit messages, and both were embraced by conservatives rather than liberals. Are these weird flukes or harbingers of a sea change in country music? To find out what's going on, I'm talking to John Bernstein, a senior research editor at Rolling Stone. Hi, John. Thanks for joining me from Brooklyn. Thank you for having me. So these songs were big news in the US over the summer, but less so in the UK. So uh, we should start by briefly explaining them. Uh, Aldine first. As I understand it, Try That in a Small Town came out in May, but didn't blow up commercially and politically until the video was released in July. Why? Why?
1: my impression of what happened there is that Jason Aldean and his team accomplished exactly what they were hoping for in releasing a charged video that would get a lot of attention. Uh, as you said, you know, Jason's song that came out in the spring at first listen, at casual listen, it sounds like any number of country music songs that are sort of vaguely positing the, the rural versus the city, right? There's some, some resentment in there, perhaps a little bit of anger, but that's, you know, you'll hear that on a couple songs on just about any country album, especially from the male country singer. So I didn't think much of it. Uh, and then the video, uh, the video has a lot of supercharged imagery. It has, you know, protesters and it sort of contrasts images of, of urban unrest and violence and looting and protesters called from various sort of Fox news broadcasts and stuff like that with these images of wholesome, uh, country music sort of iconography like farming and horses and and white people playing football. And I think to anyone really watching the sort of racial element of the music video is, is quite clear as much as Dean and his team would want to deny that. And, you know, within a few days, I believe it was CMT that banned or sort of took the video out of its rotation, which sort of kicked off a sort of controversial news cycle for a few days that completely mobilized uh, in a way that I had never seen before completely mobilized sort of a political audience to sort of support the song and kick it to number one on the charts
0: right so normally you would assume that the number one song on the Hot 100 was the most popular song in America um, but we've seen I mean British listeners will probably remember when um, people managed to get rage against the machines Christmas number one uh, as an anti X factor. Protest, You know, there's a lot of different metrics in the chart. You've got, um, you've got streaming, you've got downloads, you've got I suppose physical purchases to a, to a tiny extent. Yep. Um, in America, radio play is really important. So would you say this only got to number one because of a concerted political campaign?
1: I would, and I would say that my take on what happened here is that, you know, songs getting to number one, that's been something that has been gamed and sort of manipulated in ways for for decades. That's not a new phenomenon. Uh, you know, like, for example, K-pop fan bases and mm. Taylor Swift stan armies. Like, th- there are groups of people that have figured out that if you go and you purchase a couple hundred thousand copies of an iTunes single, for example, which is weighed much more than a stream, you know, to purchase, spend a dollar on a single, you can get a song close to number one. So that's been happening for years. What felt really new and frankly somewhat surprising is that a fan base oriented around political identity, in this case, sort of like the right wing media Mm. machine, the Daily Wire universe, uh, was able to figure that out for themselves. And I think it's, it's not unusual for there to be a coordinated, let's say, boycott of Nike ver, or performative boycott sort of political movements. And frankly, my reaction to those things are usually that, you know, I wonder how much that actually, that actually does. But in this case, yes, enough people organized around this to actually get a song to number one on the Hot 100, which was honestly very surprising to me.
0: And this song is pretty strong meat. Chris Willman in Variety called it the most contemptible country song of the decade, and Sheryl Crow accused it of promoting violence. Now, Olding has been a country star for for almost 20 years. So has he embraced margadam and the kind of people that are taking this song to number one? Or has he sort of fudged it, claimed that the message of the song has been misunderstood and so on?
1: I think he's had it bo- tried to have it both ways. Absolutely. I mean, publicly, he released a statement disavowing, you know, the various readings that people were hearing into the song. He opened the statement with something like, you know, in the past 24 hours, I've been accused of releasing a pro lynching song, which is never a good sign when an artist has to start <laughs> a statement by saying that they've been accused of releasing a pro lynching song. Uh, but yeah, I think basically Jason, my, my take on Jason Aldean, and I think a lot of people who sort of observe the industry in a perhaps more distanced or cynical way would be to say that, you know, Jason Aldean was a tremendous Center of the genre, hitmaker about ten years ago. He is at a stage where a lot of artists in commercial country music, you know, once they hit their forties and they start to get viewed as as perhaps past their prime in terms of commercial relevancy. I think Jason has found a way to tap into sort of a new audience and a new energy of sort of you know right wing MAGA sort of Trump era anger and resentment and frustration. And he began doing this just only in the last couple of years. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, look, uh, he certainly had never had a hot, uh, a number one song in the country, all genre before. So there, he's found some success in that.
0: Uh, unlike Aldine, uh, Oliver Anthony rocketed out of obscurity when a video clip of Rich Men North of Richmond went viral on social media. And uh, the songs are, are very different, too. It's a very odd song, like lyrically. I think two-thirds of it point one way and uh, maybe one-third points the other. Mm-hmm. So back in the 30s, I think a man with an acoustic guitar singing about working-class struggles would have read as uh, left-wing and, and it, you know, <laughs> even beyond, beyond the 30s. Why did conservatives jump on this one? Like, what, what, what are the, uh, you know, the dog whistles or the, the signifiers in this song? Um,
1: it's a good question. This song is much less straightforward, as you point out. And uh, and yeah, I think there could have been another universe where this song could have taken off with a completely different audience. But I mean, I think the best answer I can come up with is why did conservatives jump on the song is because, uh, and I, I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of exactly how this was orchestrated behind the scenes. No one has sort of fully reported it out, it reported it out in a convincing way, but The reason that that fan base jumped on the song is because within 24 hours of, or however long of him releasing the song to the internet, again, there was a, I don't want to say coordinated because again, I I haven't reported out exactly how this happened, but there was this immediate right-wing media ecosystem that jumped on the song. The, again, the Daily Wire folks, uh, various right-wing Christian influencers. And so the song was being pumped out and by very specific people to a very specific audience within hours. I mean, and then, you know, within days you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is posting the song, and Carrie Lake, and like far-right far right politicians. So basically, you know, I think there are some dog whistles in the song. I think there's some QAnon sort of references. There's references to Jeffrey Epstein in the song. Uh, That stuff feels very of the moment in terms of, you know, very modern conservatism and right wing sort of movements. There's more sort of 1980s conservative line about fudge rounds and and welfare, you know, that sort of evoking welfare as this weaponized sort of thing, too, that I think scans as any to any old fashioned conservative as conservative. But what Oliver Anthony, I don't think we yet really fully understand what is happening with Oliver Anthony in a way.
0: Well, he, he released a statement and he went, it was funny seeing my song at the presidential debate. That's the Republican primary debate. Because I wrote that song about those people, you know, that song is written about the people on that stage and a lot more too, not just them, but definitely them. Um, so he, he's not like he's come out for uh, for Biden here. But, you know, is he playing a bit of a slippery game? Or, or do you think that, that, that genuinely this is a kind of fairly raw, not entirely coherent song that got picked up by people he didn't expect? And he's just a bit kind of shell-shocked by the whole thing. I think both. I think that
1: he was thrown into a whirlwind of of craziness uh, and seeing the entire country and, and elements of this country and, it's you know, adapting him as this figure within days, certainly at the debates and stuff like that. But I think, I mean, my take on Oliver Anthony's politics and the sort of the politics that are espoused in that song are that he's tapping into something that I think there's a lot of energy uh, around in this country right now. I think he's tapping more into a sort of independent, perhaps libertarian, deeply distrustful of all politics sort of, Joe Rogan, Mm. Jordan Peterson, free thinker uh, sort of ideology that has certainly shares a lot with sort of mainstream Republicans, just a a, a deep distrust of all institutions and all government. It also shares a a deep distrust of of the institution of the GOP. So I think that's sort of more along the lines that he is walking in. but, But, you know, within a day of him denouncing the politicians on stage, that are using his song. He's also giving like exclusive interviews to Fox News and to, you know, reactionary outlets like Barry Weiss's uh, publication. So he's, I view him as trying to walk that sort of free thinker libertarian, I'm uh, above both sides kind of element, which is its own politics, of course.
0: Yes, it certainly is. And the politics of country music, as as I understand it, are usually more implicit than explicit. And a lot of the time you do get people singing about, you know, a raw deal and uh, how they're not so keen on the, the city folk and so on. Would you say it, it has always been broadly conservative, though not always attached to the Republican Party? Like, is that fair or would, would you say apolitical would be fair? I don't know.
1: I'm always wary of saying anything sort of re- reductive or, or not reductive, but just of coming to any neat conclusions about country music when it comes to politics, because I think there's a great book, for example, by a professor named Peter uh, LaChapelle, who wrote a whole book about country music and its history of sort of partisan politics. It's called I'd Fight the World. And uh, I was just sort of flipping through it the other day and learning about some of the very earliest literal, like fiddling, you know, musicians back in the early 20th century. And, and they're sort of stumping for progressive politicians in addition to certainly country music's tied to sort of whiteness in this country and to Southern whiteness and to um, conservatism, you know, for, I mean, for, for many decades that meant the Democratic Party and for the last, however many 50 years, this meant the Republican Party that has always been there. And there have been, I would say, ebbs and flows in terms of moments in time when country music has become more explicitly, as you put it, open about sort of weighing in on electoral politics and partisan politics. But I think its own politics as a genre and the way that expresses its relationship to ruralness and to whiteness and to work and to gender, all those things, of course, have always been its own politics.
0: Well, it seems that some of the most famous political country songs even they are not um straightforward so loretta lynn's the pill was a big kind of often seen as like a sort of big feminist moment for country music but she's not a a, a, she was not a super liberal progressive and merle haggard's "Okie from muskogee which i suppose is a as a sort of antecedent of try that in a small town But then that's a whole complicated thing about how much was that satire and that Merle Haggard took various political positions that were much more left than that. So is there a, just maybe just a general reluctance for people to go, this is where I stand and I'm associated with like this party and this set of positions and that there is more of a kind of this song is this song, but now I'm going to do another song that's just about something else and don't put me in a box.
1: I think there are a few things going on there. I think for one thing, country music and, and it's sort of like as it's produced and, and disseminated in a commercial way from the city of Nashville, above all else has always understood how to sell records and prioritized the importance of selling records. So I think that it's not a new phenomenon mm. that artists have understood that they have Fan bases on, of all politics, and that you know it was true in let's say 2016, where you know coming out for Trump or Hillary Clinton was probably disqualifying to some percentage of your fan base. I think that's always been true, and I think artists have always been savvy about mm. avoiding making those types of associations. I'm thinking of Dolly Parton maybe as the sort of prime example of someone who knows how to navigate that. Uh, but but I also think that you know it makes me think of Oliver Anthony, and and it makes me think of the tradition in a way that he's stepping into of a long line of artists who view themselves, whether or not they are, view themselves as outside the sort of structure of business and commerce and society and, and 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 genre and industry. People like Merle Haggard or Loretta Lynn or Dolly Parton, or even I'm thinking of someone like Toby Keith, whose politics are sort of a little bit more thorny and complicated than people want to characterize them as. I think there is a long history of country singers resisting the fact that both sides of the political aisle have always wanted to claim them in some ways. Uh, I think both sides have always wanted to claim Johnny Cash. I think many, many um, major countries sort of stars who become stars. And I think um, probably for good reason, there's there's a deep distrust of that process of, of trying to be claimed by one party or another that runs really kind of at the heart of country music.
0: Well I think you know the classic example at least in in recent years of what happens if you fall down on one side of a really polarized debate is the chicks then known as the Dixie Chicks in 2003 who went from country megastars to pariahs after singer Natalie Maines criticized President Bush over the Iraq war this was just really a kind of you know, throwaway comment on a on a London stage um, and it sort of it didn't finish their career. They continued to sell all their records, but it kind of it really broke their ties to to Nashville. Um, I think this is one of the classic cases of cancel culture, though it's not called that. And Taylor Swift has talked about how that became a cautionary tale, and that the, the the sort of sarcastic title of the chicks' documentary, Shut Up and Sing, became what she absorbed as advice. So did that have a chilling effect in the years after that? And was it just a chilling effect on the left, or were there also People on the right who just thought, "I don't want to kind of nail my colors to the mast." Yeah,
1: the way that to me, like the way that the chick story gets circulated and sort of disseminated as a cautionary tale in country music, it's it's talked about and referred to just still constantly. Uh, so I think that there's no question of that for for young artists who maybe have let's say left wing beliefs and are unsure if they should share them. The industry throws the chicks at them, like as Taylor Swift put it, I think, to, to countless artists, especially to, to women uh, in country music for whom speaking out and not playing the game, the stakes are always much different than for, for, for men. Being a guy uh, who speaks his mind in country music gets branded as being an outlaw, gets branded as being a renegade. It's, it's a marketable symbol for 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 male country stars in a way that, you know, being an outspoken woman means very different things. It's a good question whether like sort of artists have internalized that who may, on the other side of the aisle who have right-wing beliefs and are unsure if they feel as though they should share them. Because I do think that in country music, what is still true is that there is a shared and safe common set of ideals and types of things that you can say on stage that are not viewed as political, that are political. And I think that you know some of those right, maybe more further right artists, like conservatism gets viewed as being apolitical when it is its own politics. So I, I, uh, but I'm sure that there are some people who have internalized that idea on that side too. I just can't speak to any
0: examples. Well, like you say, it can be quite hard for young progressive women, and some of them sort of distance themselves from country, or at least pure country. Taylor Swift, of course, Casey Musgraves to some extent, although she's on that Zach Bryan record. And that can be for musical reasons, which I imagine it largely was for, for Swift. But Maren Morris recently told the LA Times that she was done with country. She said music is supposed to be the voice of the oppressed, the actual oppressed, and now it's being used as a really toxic weapon in culture wars. Are there... A lot of people like that, do you think, who just feel like this is, no, this is no place for us, that it is not a broad enough church and that it is better to step away? The, my short answer is yes. I think there are a lot of people who, who
1: hate to feel that way, but do feel that way. I think there are people who still believe in the institutions and sort of formalities of the industry of country music enough to really want to try to play the game and perhaps tweak things from the inside in really subtle ways like the band little big town is is not a band that gets talked about as being political and their statements are are in their in their music are very sort of gentle and nuanced but i view them as a group that is doing sort of subtle work from within country music but i think you have just as many if not more people who maybe once harbored those dreams and beliefs in 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 all of these things in country music and who have come up against the harsh realities of what it means to have to play all these games in so many ways and to have to perhaps suppress your beliefs or play along or at least exist in an industry where folks who have openly transphobic views like Jason Aldean are propped up and supported and and and, and celebrated by mm. so many if not uh, condoned implicitly through silence
0: I mean the music industry you know al- always changes. And if I look back to, say, 2013, when Casey Musgraves released Same Trailer, Different Park, and the song Follow Your Arrow, um, Brandi Clark was around at the same time. And there was a lot of talk about how um, you could be more progressive in country. One of the big writers, big songwriters of that period, Sean McAnally, was uh, gay. And it felt like, oh, okay, country's changing. 2016, you write this piece about country musicians in the 2016 election, and you're going basically... It's so toxic that they don't want to go. You know, they don't want to attach themselves to Clinton or Trump. Now, though, you've got these Aldine and Anthony songs going to number one. You know, the music industry loves to, to replicate a hit. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this seems like a a way forward, or whether people are thinking, do you know what? Do I want to take the risk in order to maybe get this sort of freak hit in the short term? of then having a kind of a symbolic MAGA hat on in the long term.
1: Yeah, like I said before, I think if there's one sort of underlying principle that dictates how the industry, country music industry in Nashville operates, it is following the money and where the hits are. Uh, there's every reason to expect that, that folks from within and outside of the actual industry will attempt to replicate what Aldean and later... Oliver Anthony did. My guess is that most of them we are artists and songs that very few people ever hear of mm. uh, because that's t- that tends to be the way that, you know, image chasing trends goes, right? Like, so I, d- I don't necessarily foresee there being like a whole new wave of culture war right wing number one songs in the country that are coming from Nashville, but I do anticipate that there'll be every attempt to replicate that and that those attempts will probably be mostly unsuccessful.
0: As someone who's written a lot about protest songs, I'm just wondering that you know where, where is the where is the left wing media network that is going to propel righteous righteous socialist anthems to number 1 in the same way. Maybe they just don't have the machinery out there.
1: I don't think they do. It's a great question and I think the the world would look like a very different place if that infrastructure existed I don't yeah I don't see there being like a um a Morris sort of MSNBC led campaign to get (laughs) to get like a you know socially progressive song to number one on the charts perhaps you know the only version of that that I could ever see would be a song that's rooted in a ton of anger and fear somehow coming from the left too right those are Mm -hmm. such motivating emotions there's so much anger and so much fear behind try that in a small town. And those are emotions that cause you to click, you know, to pay 99 cents for something.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, John Bernstein. You're welcome.
1: It was really great to talk about these things.
0: John is working on a biography of the late singer-songwriter Jason Towns Earl. And thanks to you for listening to The Bunker. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or reviewing us on iTunes. You can also support The Bunker on Patreon, where you'll get episodes early without ads and with bonus goodies. Take care and see you soon. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker USA was presented by Dorian Linsky. Produced by Liam Tate with assistance from Adam Wright. An audio production from me, Robin Lieber. Music by Kenny Dickinson, art by Jim Parrott, socials by Jess Harpin, managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.